Skid Newborn Screening is the legacy of all Skid children, from David Vetter to my own son to all of those whose stories were told in committee meetings in every state. As parents, we opened our lives and struggles to the committee members who had to make the decision on whether or not this disease warranted an addition to each state's screening panel. My hope is that someday we'll have the ability to economically screen for all genetic diseases affecting children. This would serve to empower families because, as Heather and I continue to say, knowledge is power. Listen as Barb Barla share her long history of advocacy and innovative efforts in newborn screening. Barb is currently the director of Skid Angels for Life Foundation. Her involvement with the nonprofit sector began after her son Ray, born in 1994, was diagnosed at ten and a half months old with X-linked severe combined immunodeficiency, commonly known as the Bubble Boy disease. Barb served on the Board of Trustees for the Immune Deficiency Foundation for 18 years, where she advocated for the interests of parents, families, and individuals living with immune deficiency at numerous state and federal committees while developing the SCID initiative program. While her son was hospitalized as a baby at Duke University, Barb developed the first listserv for families of children diagnosed with SCID. Be inspired by Barb's story of perseverance, determination, and dedication in supporting families facing genetic diseases. Hello, this is the Newborn Screening Spotlight. This podcast is about the advancement of rare disease research told by health professionals, researchers, parents, and advocates. This podcast is for you to learn how newborn screening research saves the lives of babies every day through the discovery of new technology and treatment. You will hear stories from experts who treat babies, the families who care for them, and the researchers who make it all happen. We are your co-hosts. I am Dr. Ki Chan. And I'm Dr. Amy Brower. We're from the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, also known as the MBSTRN. Our work is supported by one of the institutes at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, called the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, also known as NICHD. Dr. Chan and I are from the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, also known as ACMG, and ACMG leads the MBSTRN. Screening babies saves lives every day, and research advances newborn screening by developing new technologies to screen, diagnose, and treat. MBSTRN helps accelerate research by creating tools, resources, and expertise for researchers, doctors, families, patients, and advocates. To learn how you can help advance newborn screening research, advocate for rare disease screening and treatment, and learn about important discovery, become a member of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network by visiting our website at www.mbstrn.org. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's an honor for MBSTRN to be able to share your story and your long history of advocacy in newborn screening. Barb, you're currently the Executive Director of Skid Angels for Life. What's the mission of your organization? Well, our mission is to increase awareness of Skid, support families 
by providing a safe environment for them to connect, to grant scholarships to support these families in a variety of areas, and provide parent and family education for those affected by SCID. Our advocacy area has always been a strong component of our mission, and we recently expanded this into a new area by offering our first research grant. In fact, for our inaugural year, we funded not just one, but two grant requests. One was for a one-year grant for our area of interest, looking for new and curative treatment approaches. This grant was awarded to Dr. Donald Cohn of UCLA for IL-7R alpha gene editing as a treatment for a form of SCID known of as IL-7 SCID. The work being performed is to develop a gene editing approach to treat this particular form of SCID. If this becomes possible, we likely won't see it come to clinical trials for several years. This is the very earliest work toward a gene editing therapy for this form of SCID, but this is where it all begins. We're actually helping to kickstart this very important research. The second grant we funded was a one-year grant for our area of interest in an innovative approach targeting a marginalized community. This was awarded to Dr. Yolan Walter of the University of South Florida. This proposal focuses on predicting the clinical phenotype and increasing awareness of a novel RAG1 founder variant causing a form of atypical SCID, which displays a variable immune dysregulation. This variant of SCID found in the Mennonite communities across Pennsylvania, Virginia, North Carolina, and Ohio is highly variable in severity, leading to cases where some patients require bone marrow transplantation for survival and others require no extraordinary treatment, living their lives relatively unaffected by the variant. Our goal going forward is to offer a grant opportunity on an annual basis and hopefully we'll have the funding available to do so. Without our donors, programs like this would not be possible. Moving on, our scholarship programs are, of course, very welcome to the families. There are few opportunities for any form of financial support for skid families, and this is a disease which can cause families to experience years of financial hardship. We have three different programs, and all three target families in the United States. The most requested is, of course, the Family Scholarship Program. We offer up to $1,000 for families currently going through treatment for SCID. This can be a first treatment or a booster or other additional treatment. The second program is the Ray Ballard Travel Scholarship Program for SCID families or patients wishing to attend a meeting or other related event to SCID. Travel to programs such as the IDF's national conferences have frequently been supported by this scholarship. Our third program is the Aisha Chaudhry Educational Scholarship Program. This program is for undergraduate students, graduate students, or those attending other secondary education programs in the U.S. who are diagnosed with SCID. And we are currently accepting applications for the 2022 fall school year. Of course, one of our most popular programs is our Facebook group, the SCID Angels for Life Foundation Facebook group. This group is restricted to parents, patients, and direct family members only. Families can find us by searching for our name on Facebook. 
and several skid-related groups have popped up on Facebook, but not all of them are very effective. For this group, Heather and I are the administrators, where families share their experiences, their triumphs, and losses. This is a great place to ask questions or just go to not feel so isolated and alone. Here is where families come to see what new information we've shared with the community. And this is actually the next generation of support following the original SCID email listserv, which I started back in 1997, which I believe, Amy, is how you and I met. <laughs> right. I was just thinking about that, Barb. Thank you so much for sharing all the amazing things that you're doing through SCID Angels for Life. I think, um, you know, I just have been amazed how just from day one, you have, you know, been an advocate and have always built these kinds of efforts to help families who've who are experiencing some of the same things that your family did. Thanks. Yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a journey. <laughs> Barb, you had a child of skin who also touched many lives and this story directly and and indirectly led to changes in the way newborns are screened, diagnosed, and treated for immune deficiency. Can you tell our listeners about his life and your hopes for his legacy? Well, Ray was born in 1994, and at that time, there was no newborn screening for SCID, and I had no family history of the disease. Ray wasn't diagnosed until he was 10 and a half months old and was already in the pediatric ICU with PCP pneumonia and on a ventilator. He was actually transported to Duke while on a ventilator, and he was the first skid patient Duke transplanted while on a ventilator. Ultimately, he'd have three transplants with me as his donor all three times. And he had many lifelong challenges, including hearing impairment caused by the antibiotics which saved his life, a feeding tube, as well as IV nutrition and IgG replacement therapy. Ray would ultimately become involved in many activities, and his determination over his lifelong challenges became an inspiration to many people. Whether it was in Taekwondo, where he earned a black belt, on the rifle team, where he lettered for three years in high school, with IDF volunteers, with Lions Club volunteers, or with the hearing-impaired community. He just always shined. Ray embraced fun and had a unique ability to empathize with others, putting their concerns over his own. He was indeed a superhero to many people. Unfortunately, I lost him in early 2019 after his immune system declined again. Barb, thanks so much for sharing Ray's story. I was wondering if you would like to share more about his journey, especially after the transplantation, because I think that information would be very informative for our listeners who may be on a similar journey and that this journey is complicated, is complex, but they're not alone. So I think hearing your story would be so incredibly empowering. Um, of course. Ray was very complicated medically. Um, he had severe graft versus host after his first transplant, which affected his GI tract. Um, basically what happened was he got an enteral virus that nobody could have predicted he would have gotten. Um, everything up to that point had gone reasonably well, but that caused a lot of damage to his GI tract when the graft versus host started attacking his, his actual his own cells. So he was on a G-tube for his entire life. Uh, he also was on IV nutrition his entire life. And while that's not as common 
now you don't see that happening in kids that they're on these supplements forever. Many, many kids still end up with G-tubes because they need additional feeding. Um, often those who've gone through chemotherapy, they have damage to their GI tracts and need supplemental feedings of some type, um, sometimes because of mucositis and other problems have caused them to not have good nutritional absorption. Um, so G-tubes are a very common thing. Um, he was also hearing impaired because of an antibiotic, and it saved his life. I mean, that we couldn't have gone without having given him an, the antibiotics he received because he was very, very sick. But it did cause a hearing loss. Um, and there is also a, a large number of hearing impaired children, some from antibiotics, some um, because of their particular form of skid actually leads to more risk of having a hearing impairment. Um, and of course, th the trend now seems to be that more and more patients are going through chemotherapy. And chemotherapy has its own pros and cons, quite honestly. It does allow for a better engraftment, opening up the cell space for the cells. Um, however, there's a lot of long-term complications, including um, issues when the kids get older and go into puberty, not having the hormones they need to go through puberty. There are kids who've had problems with their teeth that were forming when they were given chemotherapy because this is done at such a young age. Uh, certain things like their teeth are not even formed yet. Um, even though we now have newborn screening and the kids are generally able to go into treatment healthy, there's still a lot of complications to this disease. It's not a quick one and done and move on with the rest of your life type of disease. Um, unfortunately, we also see problems pop up when kids reach puberty, that they tend to have some decline in their immune function. And that has to be watched and determine whether they have to be treated again later, further down the road. So we're still learning a lot about this disease. Um, that's why there's so many clinical research trials needed just to keep abreast of what is happening, what's being caused by the treatment, what's being caused by the disease, and what's just incidental to the fact that these are medically complicated children. Yeah, Barb, thank you for sharing um, Ray's medical journey. And with all this information, how has it informed research? I think every child's journey informs research. This is still followed so much as research protocols. So many of these children are treated with new drugs, new methods of delivery of the drugs. Um, it's all still somewhat research, even though there are known ways and tracks to use. This isn't a disease where, like I said, it's a one and done therapy. Basically what has to happen is Physicians watch how things go with these kids, one or two generations worth even, to determine what the next steps for, that, for their research should be. Um, they're learning as we go along, too. It's, it's not the fact that they already have the answers. They're, they're learning the questions as they follow our children and follow our children as they age and go into adulthood and become old enough to have their own families and move forward in life. And just to follow up with that, Barb, um, how do parents get this information today? The best places for information 
are obviously, I'm going to say skid angels because we do share everything we learn. There's the Immune Deficiency Foundation with its skid compass program has great information. Um, so we try and make sure that they're, that it's available to families. Uh, clinicaltrials.gov will tell you who's doing research and where, but it's the families talking to one another that they find out a lot more and they find out who the people are doing it and what they're, how, how it's going. They find other families who are already in the research protocol and learn information and that helps them. That helps them know someone else is already doing this or someone else has done this. Our website again is skidangelsforlife.org and we put up as much information there as we can. We also put information into our Skid Angels Facebook group. And we hope that any families that are listening to this will find us and connect with us and let us know your story as well, because it matters. Your stories matter. Um, in regards to newborn screening, I believe it was 2006 when I was the first parent to speak in favor of skid newborn screening during the public comment period for the Secretary's Advisory Committee on Heritable Disorders in Newborns and Children, emphasizing poor quality of life for survivors after late diagnosis. At this point, the committee had heard from Drs. Buckley and Puck concerning the mortality rate of late diagnosed skid patients, but had not heard the parent or patient's standpoint. I actually ended up speaking at several meetings and brought to them a new perspective providing them with information on the poor quality of life those children who were diagnosed late but were lucky enough to be the survivors. Once recommended by the committee and Secretary Sebelius, the real battle began as the advocacy had to move to every state. Heather traveled to several states herself, presenting information on the increased survival, quality of life, and cost efficacy of early diagnosis. She also supported numerous family members, encouraging them to speak out in their own states. State newborn screening committees and legislatures were much more receptive to the pleas of a parent from their own state rather than the representative of a national group. Consequently, skid newborn screening is the legacy of all skid children from David Vetter to my own son all of those whose stories were told in committee meetings in every state. As parents, we opened our lives and struggles to the committee members who had to make the decision on whether or not this disease warranted an addition to each state's screening panel. It's such a powerful story, Barb. And as you know, and our listeners may remember, um, I was one of those advisory committee members. And in 2004, 2005, when the committee mm -hmm. started, I was appointed for my background in genomics. Um, I didn't even tell the committee I had a son with skid. So seeing you in the audience, hearing your advocacy, hearing Dr. Buckley, Dr. Puck, other experts, and just, you know, seeing that was really, you know, there was so much work to do beyond just the science of whether or not newborn screening made sense to do. So in right. thinking about newborn screening, before Ray was diagnosed with SCID, were you aware of newborn screening? Um, and when you think about a prospective parent these days, what do you think they should know about newborn screening, not just for SCID, but for all conditions? 
Well, it's, it's funny you ask that question. When Ray was born in 1994, I thought the newborn screening panel was a blessing of good genetic health. I can remember asking when he was diagnosed with SCID why it hadn't been picked up on his newborn screening tests. I naively assumed that anything this serious would have already been being screened for. I had no idea the complexity of developing a new test that would be suitable for a screening test and all the concerns over why it should or shouldn't be included. Um, it just, like I said, it just never crossed my mind that it wouldn't already be part of that test. SCID kind of became the poster child for a new addition to the recommended universal screening panel as it was the first test to be added in a number of years. This was good and bad because as advocates, we had no real model to follow, and this was all new territory for us. We had to give ourselves a crash course on how and why a disease is considered for addition to the panel and just put ourselves out there learning as we went along. Um, but it was definitely a joint effort between all of the stakeholders, um, including the Immune Deficiency Foundation, the Jeffrey Modell Foundation, Skid Angels, and all the individual families. Because SCID is a spectrum of different genetic variations, or changes, we used to call them mutations, and the needs of patients with SCID vary drastically, how do you engage clinical research partners to understand the needs and the concerns of the patient population? Well, first, there are many commonalities across patients that are crucial to families. Just Learning how to maintain proper reverse isolation protections for a child is practically universal to all forms of SCID. Second, Heather and I have both raised SCID children and have a broad range of personal knowledge. And additionally, we're both highly empathetic to issues that can weigh heavily on a mother's heart, so we listen closely to every parent's story. Next, most clinical research partners are typically looking at a specific form of SCID or patients that meet a certain criteria. Within these groups, there are always some overlapping issues. And those issues which do seem to be present in a majority of patients quickly stand out. However, we've also been known to emphasize even those issues which affect only a small number of patients because we've learned that if an issue is of critical importance to one family, it's likely to be important to someone else who hasn't shared that with us or their physicians. As a parent of skid children, you deal with so much that often you only tell a physician about the biggest problem that week or that day. There's too much to go over, and consequently, physicians don't often realize the struggles their families face. But if we point out a concern, then suddenly they'll recognize it in more families. So Barb, in thinking about clinical research, we're always reminded that most of the conditions in newborn screening are treatable, but not curable. And it was really with the addition of SCID to the newborn screening panel that we saw that some children and newborns could in fact be cured. So what does SCID Angels for Life do to help disseminate information on new clinical research for newborns, but also for children struggling with immune deficiencies and some of the comorbidities throughout their lifetime? Well, we've worked together with clinical research partners where appropriate 
to provide information to the patients and the families regarding new therapies or even research trials. In some cases, we've overseen town hall webinars where a partner can present information on a therapy option and participants can ask questions, receiving real-time answers. We've always believed that knowledge is power, and part of our mission is to provide as much information as possible to patients and their families. No one wants to make a decision on a treatment option during a crisis. It's better to keep abreast of the latest technologies and treatments, hoping you'll never need the information. Of course, those with a child who is not thriving at the moment are going to be interested in this new information and at the top of the list to go listen to one of these webinars. But we also have families that know they will face these questions again as their carrier siblings and now actually carrier children of patients. These families are often especially receptive to learning the latest options available. What role does Facebook or other social channels help to support families who newborn screen positive for SCID. Are there things that national groups like the NIH, the CDC, and HRSA could be doing to support new families? Well, one thing we've found is that local states and communities vary greatly in the depth of information provided to a parent, as well as the quality of that information, when presenting a positive newborn screen result. We've seen some parents who've been left feeling that this is no big deal, while others have been left with the impression that their child can never survive. There needs to be a way to get more hospitals, communities, and states to utilize the quality information which is available. Skid Angels has worked extensively with the Immune Deficiency Foundation on the Skid Compass project. But many parents, when presented with a positive newborn screen, are never given this information or directed where to find it. It is still a very scary period for many families. They search social media for information, and those lucky enough to find Skid Angels have been ever so grateful to be part of a community that stands beside them, gives them hope, and helps them navigate a new and scary medical world. It's so amazing that Skid Angels is there to help parents from the very beginning all the way through their lifetime. Um, So thinking about Skid Angels, you talked a little bit about when we kicked off the podcast, the efforts of this important organization. So you guys manage three scholarship programs to support families. There's a family scholarship, a travel scholarship, and an education scholarship. How could our listeners learn more about these programs? Well, by going to skidangelsforlife.org. And clicking on scholarships, you can find all the information as well as the online applications. Uh, The family and travel scholarships are available year-round, and we've already seen a surge this year in the number of patients needing help on especially the family scholarships. Um, Applications for the educational scholarships are accepted from March through July each year for the fall semester. And um, donors can also select to support any of the scholarship programs directly when making a donation to Skid Angels for Life. You have hosted several town halls and other informational webinars or clinical trials where patients and their families are looking to have their questions answered directly. What are some of the common frequently asked questions? Questions typically revolve around the qualifications to participate, the efficacy of treatment, 
um, the commitment requirements for participation, uh, any known complications or risk factors, and the number of patients successfully treated to date. Our participants are typically pretty savvy as they've already been through a very complex medical journey. So they're not going to take things at face value. They want numbers and they want to know how these studies have gone in the past, what everything that's known about them to date. I think through your advocacy and your work with Skid Angels for Life, along with Heather, you guys have really created this educated population of parents and families. And in listening to your answers, Barb, reminded that you're touching multiple generations in a family. And so that just has to be such a great source of comfort and motivation as you continue to work to improve the lives of all newborns. Um, Dr. Chan and I work in a special area of newborn screening that focuses on research. And so we're so excited when we get to host parents and families like you who play such an important role in helping to advance newborn screening research. So with that, we'll end our podcast today with asking you the question we ask all of our podcast guests, what does newborn screening research mean to you? Well, I feel it's the tools and resources needed to keep abreast of the latest technology and treatment options for all diseases affecting newborns in order to maintain the highest level and broadest reach to recognize treatable diseases. My hope is that someday we'll have the ability to economically screen for all genetic diseases affecting children. This would serve to empower families because, as Heather and I continue to say, knowledge is power. Thank you for listening to this episode of Newborn Screening Spotlight. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and share an episode with your colleagues, friends, and family. Get involved. Stay informed. Help us advance discoveries. Together, Together let's, let's increase, increase the, the impact, impact of newborn screening research, research by listening to, to your stories. stories.